This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 1, Lesson 11. The reading is 2 Kings. We'll start with my first impressions. Maybe it's just that I've read this section over and over again. But for whatever reason, I just kept thinking it was going to end quicker than it did. After all, it's a foregone conclusion at the beginning of this book. The northern tribes, the ones that we call Israel collectively, they have signed their death warrant essentially with Jeroboam. In fact, Jeroboam's name comes up over and over again as the nation continues to depart away from the things of God. And it's just one negative step after another, drip, 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 until God's patience finally runs out. It's not much better with the southern kingdom either. In the days of Hezekiah, already the fate is sealed for Judah. And yet, Hezekiah lives, and his son and his grandson. And finally, Josiah comes along, which is always my signal. We're at the end of the book now. Josiah's the last king, and his three sons, there's not really much about them written in the text But even after that, it continues. There's more bad news. It's an indication to me that God's long-suffering is profound, that in these dark days, especially with Josiah and Hezekiah, there are good things that are happening, good people who are living and doing good work, and those works are not wasted. And that should give us courage as we face difficult times ourselves. If our world continues to decay, if it continues to drift, that doesn't mean we're just spinning our wheels. God has work for us to do, and we are going to be empowered to do it. And there's a reward waiting for those who do. I think I mentioned last week how difficult it's going to be in these texts to just pick one story, or even one story from one of my very favorite characters, uh, Elisha, who plays a prominent role in the first half of the book. But I'm going to draw your attention to the very last event in his life that's recorded in chapter 13 of Second Kings and starting in verse number 14. Elisha is dying, and the king of Israel who happens to be Joash or Jehoash at this particular time, he comes to visit. And clearly there is an affinity. There is a respect there between the kings of Israel and Elisha. His absence is going to be missed. I'm sure Elisha was thinking I'd do with a little less respect and a little more obedience to God's will, but be that as it may. The contrast is interesting here in 2 Kings chapter 13 because over and over again, more than any other character I know in the Bible, Elisha is referred to as the man of God. Oftentimes, entire chapters will go by without his name being mentioned. You almost forget who we're talking about here. The man of God, the man of God. And in this particular context, and there are others as well, by the way, the king of Israel is called exactly that, the king of Israel, instead of Joash or Jehoash. In fact, sometimes it's difficult to tell, especially since these names are all very similar among the kings of Israel, which king we're talking about. And I wonder if some of that is on purpose. In the Bible, oftentimes a person's name is taken away, either by God as he speaks to the prophets, or even by a foreign leader like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel and his friends into captivity, and the first thing he does is take their name away. It's a dehumanizing thing. It's a degrading thing. I own you to the extent where I am going to decide what you're going to be called. If I take your name away, I'm taking your personhood away. 
And in a very real sense, I think that that is the way that the text describes these kings of Israel. They're all more or less interchangeable. It doesn't matter which one is which. If I were to receive a pop quiz on what deeds were done by Joash versus what deeds were done by Jehoahaz versus what deeds were done by Pekahiah or whatever, I'm sure I'd fail. Because really, there's not a grain of difference between them. They're all people, more or less, who had some passing interest in the things of God, but really, ultimately, were going to do their own thing. And then eventually he'd probably be assassinated and the usurper would assume the throne and do exactly what his predecessor would do. The man of God comes across somewhat differently, though. Yes, in a sense, he's being robbed of his personhood, too, but in a very different and profound way. If your identity is taken away and what is left is only your relationship with God, that's a rather exciting thing. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me in Galatians 2, verse 20. That's an example of what we're talking about here. The man of God is only the man of God. A story describes how the king comes to Elisha wanting victory, obviously, over his enemies, the Aramaeans. And Elisha promises that he will be victorious, and he hands him these arrows to beat the ground with, and the king only beats the ground three times. Elisha considers that to be inadequate. You need more than that to have a complete and total victory. And as a result, he's not going to be completely victorious over his enemies. And this idea of being half committed, fighting the war halfway, getting half of the job done, this is really what the kings of Israel have been all about for generations now. An unwillingness to completely commit to the things of God, half service, half victories. God wants more from us than that. If you've decided to be the man of God, then don't do it halfway. Do it all the way. Completely pummel the devil. God will empower you to do it. The one verse that really jumped out at me this time through is in chapter 17 and verse 33. And it's not even talking about the people of God. It's talking about the Samaritans. If you remember the story, when the northern kingdom was taken away by the Assyrians, other people from other nations were imported to occupy the land in the place of the Israelites. They didn't know the God of heaven, of course, and so God brought a curse upon them, and quickly they determined it was because they were not serving the local deity appropriately. And so they brought in priests of Israel and had them teach the people who would ultimately be called Samaritans what it was to serve the one true God of heaven. And they had some measure of success, apparently, but it never really took They were always enthralled by the gods that they had left behind. In that sense, it was very much like the people of Israel. If you remember when Israel came out of Egypt, they came bearing idols. And they made an effort to get rid of them every once in a while, but they never really broke the habit of idol worship. Verse 33 reads, They feared the Lord, yet they were serving their own gods in accordance with the custom of the nations from among whom they had been taken into exile. That could just as easily be talking about the nation of Israel. They had moments of clarity. They had moments of devotion, faith. The incident with Elijah on Mount Carmel back in 1 Kings chapter 18 is a marvelous story. What a wonderful victory for the people of God. But it never took. They always wound up reverting back to form. Commitment to God is not a situational thing. It's not a conditional thing. You're in or you're out. 
And if we want to be more faithful than the Samaritans, we're going to have to decide once and for all, is this God that we're serving the one who is going to be the ruler of our lives? If you want to be a true child of God, if you want to be truly devoted to his things, that means getting rid of everything from your past, everything from your background, everything from your culture that is holding you back. It starts with the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's as true today as it ever was for the nation of Israel. The one word I'm focusing on this week is the word misled. It grabs my attention largely because I'm reading out of the NASB 2020 this year as I'm marking my way through the text. And misled is not a word that really appears much, if at all, in the NASB 1995 that I'm used to reading from. I'll give you an example. In chapter 14 of 2 Kings, starting in verse 23, we read, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. This is not the original Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second. Verse 24, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not abandon all the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in which he misled Israel. That is the first Jeroboam, the one that set up the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. It comes up again in chapter 15, verse number 9. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. He did not desist from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. It's again in chapter 15, verse 18, chapter 15, verse 24, chapter 15, verse 28. All the kings did the same kind of thing. They misled the people. Now, mislead is not exactly the opposite of lead. Lead means you are taking someone in a certain direction. Mislead is leading them in the wrong direction. And generally speaking, when we use the word in English, mislead means deliberately taking them in the wrong direction. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I can't tell you exactly how deliberate the actions of these kings were. But I can tell you this. They knew better. They knew how to do leadership the right way. They were informed by the prophets, by Elijah and Elisha and others as well. And they chose not to go that way. They chose to rebel. They chose to incorporate idol worship into their lives and into the lives of the people. That's misleading to think that we're better off doing it the king's way than doing it God's way. And anyone who tells you the same kind of thing today, it's better to do it the government's way. It's better to do it the pastor's way. It's better to do it the book's way rather than do it God's way as revealed in the Bible, that person is misleading you. That's not spiritual leadership. That is spiritual anarchy, saying my way is just as good or better than God's way. That kind of person has no business in leadership, and we have no business following a leader like that. God requires better from us. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading First Chronicles. God bless and keep reading.